You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to Genesis 46. We'll read the first 27 verses. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan, the sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were thirty-three in all. The sons of Gad, Zephon, Hagi, Shuni, Esban, Eri, Erodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah. Sixteen in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of An. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, 
the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. In Abbotsford, I'm in the middle of a series uh, preaching through the life of Joseph, son of Jacob, also called Israel, just to give you a little bit of context, especially you boys and girls, of where we are in the life of Joseph. I just want to draw your attention before we begin the sermon to the context. It begins back in Genesis 37, where Joseph, one of 12 sons of Jacob, is favored by his father. He's given a coat of many colors. Then he has two dreams. And these dreams entail his brothers bowing down to him, and even his mother and father bowing down to him. And his brothers get angry and jealous, and so they sell him into slavery. First they wanted to kill him, instead they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But Joseph was faithful to the Lord and his covenant. And God rose up Joseph in the house of Potiphar, a wrongly accused, thrown into prison, rose him up in prison, put him in a position of authority, interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And the dream was is that there would be fa- there would be seven good years and then seven bad years. Seven years of famine. And that's what we're in right now. The, the second year of famine. The second year of famine has begun. Joseph's brothers are, have already gone down to Egypt to buy grain once. And in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself finally to his brothers, and they weep. Joseph is second in Egypt only to Pharaoh, and the brothers weep, and they're afraid because they sold their brother into slavery. But yet Joseph has a different interpretation of the situation. God did it. God led the whole event. All these chapters, back and forth, falsely accused. God is a God of providence. And that's the theme that takes place in the life of Joseph. So with that in mind, now we come to Genesis 46. We'll look at verses 1 to 27. So beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord uses His means to accomplish His purposes. It was clear with chapter earlier in chapter 45 that sometimes God even uses evil human deeds to accomplish his great purposes. This was true of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. In in Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph assures his brothers who are afraid once Joseph reveals himself. And now do not be distressed, he says, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You hear that? He wasn't sold so much as God sent him through slavery into Egypt. Through the wickedness and jealousy of of Joseph's brothers, 
God not only preserved Joseph's life, but the brothers and the whole family, the church, the covenant people of God. The same was true of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Surrounded by his 12 closest friends, Jesus knew the cross was coming. And yet when he instituted the Lord's Supper, though the Son of Man must suffer, woe to the one who betrays him. Judas betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ. Stabbed him in the back, so to speak. He betrayed him to sinners. And yet, that was the way to the cross. And the way to the cross was filled with grief. And part of that way was Jesus being betrayed by his friends into the hands of sinners. However, even that way to the cross and the cross and the death and the resurrection accomplished, brothers and sisters, our salvation. The Lord uses means to accomplish his purposes. And we must believe that. It's not always just good means to accomplish his good purposes. It can be difficult means. Looking at your list of prayer concerns, this congregation has had a difficult few weeks, few months. This is what it is like to be a child of God. It's not just highs. It's also lows and difficulties. And yet through it all, we can confess with the church that the providence of God is amazing. Sometimes when we least expect it, God closes a door while at the same time opening a window. And this is exactly what we see take place in the word of God this morning. When Jacob, also called Israel, sets out for Egypt. So our theme this morning is our God preserves his covenant line or our God preserves his covenant seed by bringing his people down to Egypt. So first we'll see the trip, second the travelers, and then third the teaching. So first the trip. Chapter 45 ended in verse 28 by saying, And Israel said, I'm convinced, or it's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Remember, Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. The brothers handed in the coat of many colors with blood all over it. He was certainly torn to pieces by a wild animal. Not anymore. That son he thought was dead, he's actually alive. And he rules in Egypt. I'm convinced my son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. When Joseph's brothers were in Egypt... He invited his brothers to take their families, to take their father, bring them all down to Egypt, and then they could live there. Jacob at this time is old. And before he dies, he wants to see that son, Joseph, who was sold into slavery 22 years earlier. Now, when the brothers were down in Egypt in Genesis 45, Pharaoh also gave them a promise that he would give them the best of the land that they and their families could dwell in. But we never see the brothers mention that to the father. That's not important. 
The important thing at this point is that Jacob is finally going to see Joseph, the son that he so dearly loved. And so he's going to leave Canaan to head for Egypt. Think about that for a moment. Think of what that entailed. Not only to pack up an entire extended family with all their belongings. There wasn't moving trucks in those days. Everything they brought had to be carried on carts or on horseback or on donkeys or on camels, etc. They brought all these herds with them. The difficulty that that was. But the seriousness of the situation was not with the hassle of packing everything up, moving 70 people down. The issue was with the move. Are they moving to greener pastures? You say, sure, sure. Egypt has food. Canaan doesn't. But think about what we just read from the law of God just a few moments ago. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. And now they're about ready to enter into the land of Canaan to finally possess the land which was promised to Abraham. Finally, they're about there. And now rewind. They already are there now. Jacob and his sons, except Joseph. And his daughters. And his grandchildren. They're in Canaan. And now they pack up to move to Egypt. Now Jacob and his family could be motivated by the fact that there were still five years of famine left. But they're leaving the land of promise. This is not just any land. This is the land promised to Abraham. This was to be their inheritance for them and their children, their children's children after them. This was the land. It was a significant land. It was a spiritual land. It meant something. The land was a picture of eternal rest and glory with the Lord. The land of Canaan, they're about to leave. is a picture of heaven. Of rest. Of peace. Of dwelling in covenant with Emmanuel. God with us. And now. So Israel set out with all that was his in verse one. Now. They are packing up their belongings to head down to Egypt. And so they set off. They set off, and when they reach the border of their land, they stop. They stop in Beersheba. There in Beersheba, Jacob, or Israel, offered sacrifices to the God of his father. His father, as you know, is Isaac. Notice that God is referred to here covenantally. Generationally, the God of his father, Isaac, it says at the beginning of verse or the end of verse one. God himself is going to reveal himself as the God of his father. This is covenantal language. This is generational language. And notice also here that God does not tell Jacob to sacrifice to him. Sacrifice to me now before you leave the land. He doesn't say that Jacob instead of his own initiative, so to speak, sacrifices to the Lord. 
Where is he sacrificing to the Lord? Did he have to build an altar to the Lord? No. There was one already there. Boys and girls, do you know who built that altar already there? It was his father. His father. Hamilton describes this covenantal event in this way. Quote, a father on his way to see his son pauses to worship the God of his own father. It was at the same site that God appeared to Isaac and reminded him that he was the God of his father, Abraham. Genesis 26, 23 to 25. In verse 2, we see that God speaks to Jacob at night in a vision. This is relatively common for God to do to the patri- with the patriarchs. He's done this with Abraham back in Genesis 15. He did this with Abimelech in Genesis 20. Laban, chapter 31, verse 24. At night, in a vision or in a dream, God reveals himself. And he says, Jacob, Jacob, to get his attention. And Jacob responds, end of verse 2, here I am. And then God speaks. I'm God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. There are four four parts to this speech that God gives to Jacob. The first is that God identifies himself. I am God. The God of your father. Second, God gives Jacob an assurance. Do not be afraid. Sound familiar? We'll see this in our third point, but this is a theme that's carried out throughout the scriptures. The comfort of God in midst of the fear of his people. Do not be afraid. And then third, we see the object of Jacob's fear. What would he be afraid about? Well, obviously about going down to Egypt, packing up his whole entire family, all their belongings, leaving the land of Canaan and going down to a land of foreigners. Going down to Egypt. And the fourth part of this is a promise. When God says, I will make you into a great nation, etc. The promise of God is the longest part of God's revelation in the night. Now, if Jacob is fearful of going down to Egypt, he hasn't said so. Either at the end of chapter 45, beginning of 46, he doesn't say so. Nevertheless, thinking about the situation and the context, any of the possible fears that Jacob would have about a long and possibly dangerous journey, the prospect of packing up 70 people, getting down to Egypt and Pharaoh saying, you can't live here. You don't have enough food. You can't just have land. Return back to your home. Any fear that he might have had about going down to Egypt is now alleviated by God. And so this is why we see Jacob. The very next thing he does is in verse 5. Jacob left Beersheba. Jacob was encouraged and comforted that not only will he be headed down to Egypt with his whole entire family, but most importantly, God would be going with him. God would be going with him. And so now he can leave the land in peace. 
His pilgrimage to Egypt will be a pilgrimage of faith. His father Isaac was told not to go down to Egypt in Genesis 26, verse 2. But now God's telling Jacob, Isaac's son, to go. But he wouldn't be going alone. God would be going with him. And that made all the difference. That God is always faithful to his covenant. To the covenant of grace. God gives his grace to his people in such a way that they can walk in life by faith and not by sight. And then we see this with Jacob. So in verse 5 to 7, Jacob leaves with his whole family. Whole family. All of them. All of the descendants. That's important. This is reiterated in verses 5 to 7. The whole whole entire family, with all their goods, they're making their way down to Egypt. Now earlier, Pharaoh, when he made a promise to Joseph that his brothers and father could settle in the land, Joseph, or Pharaoh gave them carts to carry the people down. He said, leave all your possessions in Canaan. Just come on down. But they didn't heed that word of Pharaoh because they brought their possessions with them. We see that in verse 6. And so Jacob is headed down to Egypt. And there Joseph will close his eyes. Jacob now had no thoughts about turning back. And notice also the list of people going down to Egypt. It mentions Jacob's daughters. Up to this point, we only know of one daughter named Dinah. There also isn't any reference here to Leah. We know Rachel is dead at this point. No reference to Zilpah or Bilhah, his concubines. Nevertheless, the point being made is emphasized twice by saying all of his descendants, all his offspring, it says, verse 6, toward the end, all his offspring went to Egypt. Verse 7, he took with him to Egypt his sons, grandsons, his daughters, and granddaughters, all his offspring. No one was left behind in Canaan. None of Jacob's offspring are being omitted from God's blessing of provision. Certainly Jacob's family had had its share of friction. Think of the brother's treatment of Joseph. But God had preserved them. Jacob does not have an Ishmael as Abraham did. Jacob does not have an Esau as Isaac, his father, did. And so now, for the first time in a long time, Jacob's family is on the verge of all coming back together again to live with each other in community as the people of God. So that's the trip. Secondly, we see the travelers. Jacob traveled down to Egypt with all of his offspring. And we see this list of people from verse 8 to 27. I'm not going to reread that list. Now, there is a temptation, especially in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to skip over genealogies. Maybe at the supper table you're reading. And a whole bunch of people next chapter. But to do so would be to miss some wonderful gems of God's covenantal dealings with His people. We might think, what can be learned 
from a whole list of names. Well, what we can learn is something about the church and something about the character and the nature of her Savior, God Almighty. So let's look a bit closer at those who travel with Jacob down to Egypt. In this list, the number seven plays a prominent role in the genealogy. In biblical numerology, the number seven represents the number of perfection. It's a very important number. And so we see, for instance, look at verse 22. We read in verse 22, these were the sons of Jacob who were born, or sorry, these were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. 14 is seven added to seven. A number of perfection. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, has half that number, half of 14. She has seven. We see this in verse 25. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to Rachel, his daughter, seven in all. In verse 15, we see that from Leah came 33 people. And from her maid Zilpah, in verse 18, there was 16. So together they had 49 children. That is seven times seven. But the most important multiple of seven is listed at the end of our text. It's listed in verse 27. Verse 27 we read, With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. 70 is 7 times 10. 10 is the number of fullness. And 7 is the number of perfection. Sidney Gridanis says, quote, 70 is the full, complete number of God's people. Just as the 70 nations of Genesis 10 represent all the descendants of Adam, so now the 70 sons represent all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of Israel. All of God's people move down to Egypt. Not one is left behind in the promised land. Other features of this genealogy include the fact that the wives produced twice as many offspring as did the concubines. Of Jacob's children, Dan is the least fruitful, one son. Benjamin is the most fruitful, ten sons. And this genealogy usually ex- extends into the third generation, except with Judah and Asher, the genealogy extends into the fourth generation. And the final feature of this genealogy that we ought to notice is the mention of Laban in verses 18 to 25. Now to bring you back in history here to Laban, this is the father-in-law of Jacob or of Israel. Remember, he had a beautiful daughter, and Jacob wanted to marry her. And so Laban says, okay, you can marry her. You work for me seven years, and then you can marry Rachel. So he worked seven years, and Laban pulled a switcheroo and gave him Leah. Seven more years, and then you can, then you can have Rachel. Fourteen years he worked for Laban. A difficult relationship, nevertheless. But now Laban's name comes up. We see it in verse 18, verse 25. Verse 25, the text says, These are the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, 
whom Laban had given to his daughter, Rachel. Now, it does not say anything in this genealogy about Laban giving Rachel or Leah away. And so we might wonder why is Laban mentioned by Moses under the inspiration of God? Why is Laban mentioned at this point? Certainly the original readers would have known who Laban was. Why mention him at this point? Laban hasn't been present in the narrative since chapter 31. However, Hamilton says, the resurrection of Laban's name momentarily throws us into the past. It takes us back from a Jacob with 70 kin to a Jacob with no kin. It recalls the similar crisis Jacob faced there. So think back to that situation with Laban in chapter 31. Jacob was ready to leave Paddan Aram for Canaan under less than happy circumstances. Here in our text, Jacob is preparing to leave Canaan for Egypt under equally less than happy circumstances. In chapter 31, Jacob had to deal with Laban. Now, in our text, Genesis 46, Jacob has to deal with a famine. In chapter 31, he fled with his family. And now, he is moving with his family. It's clear at this point that the main point of this genealogy is not merely a historical one, but a covenantal one. A covenantal one. That God has been and continues to be at work. And so Jacob leaves the land of promise with the entire church traveling with him. And all we can say is that God's ways are not our ways. Which brings us thirdly to the teaching of this text. There are a few aspects of our text that require closer attention. And they focus on this vision that Jacob had in Beersheba. The longest part of that revelation of God is a promise that God makes. And in that promise, there are essentially four promises. First, I will make you into a great nation there in Egypt. Second, I will go down with you to Egypt. Third, I will surely bring you up again. And then fourth, Joseph, your son, will close your eyes. You're going to die with Joseph in Egypt. Notice what's not mentioned in that promise of God. The land. The land. Egypt was not the inheritance of the people of God. Canaan was. And this is why usually in the Old Testament, dealing with the covenant and promises, the land is mentioned. Canaan. Whether the promise was to Abraham before the land was dwelt in, or through Joshua when the Israelites were about to enter the land, or even the exiles in Babylon who are waiting to enter the land, the land was important. The land was their possession. God gave it to them. Concerning the promise of God to make Jacob into a great nation, we know that this was fulfilled. For when Israel left Egypt 400 years later, they left with 600,000 men. That's just men, not women and children. Maybe the two million people. The whole greater Vancouver area. They all came from these 70 people. God indeed did grow them into a great nation. And they're headed from these same people headed down to Egypt now. And then the third part of this promise is that Jake, God told Jacob that he would bring him up again. This is the only reference implicitly to the promised land. Jacob would never see the promised land 
once he left it. Though the land is important, it's not that important. It's not that important. It's not the final resting place. God's people will have life forevermore. Not in the land of Canaan. Not in Canada. Not upon this earth. It's not that important in the greater scheme of things. We're talking about the new heavens and a new earth. That's the culmination of the promises of the land. Of God dwelling forevermore. Not just for a few hundred years or a few thousand years with his people on earth. Forevermore. So as we'll see in a moment, this promise extends in in principle to Jesus Christ. Life does not end on earth. And with this part of the promise, God is speaking to Jacob and he's switching between a singular and a plural use of you. I will bring you out of Egypt. Plural. It's not talking about Jacob. Jacob will not be brought out of Egypt. His bones maybe. But not living. He's referring to his people. To the church. To his kin. To his offspring. And the last part of God's covenant renewal promise is that Jacob, or the, sorry, that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes. It was the privilege of the oldest son to, when their father died, to close his eyes. To end that chapter, this is still a custom today in Orthodox Jewish communities. However, not the oldest, but Joseph. Joseph. The son that Jacob loved so much and has missed. The son that was dead, or so Jacob thought, but is now alive. So, brothers and sisters, as we think about this text, we take a step back. What does this have to say for the people of God today? What our text is about is exalting the work of God and preserving his people. Preserving his covenant line or his covenant seed. And Joseph was gone, dead, but now he's alive. There have been times in church history, whether in Elijah's day when there were only 7,000 who had not, not bowed the knee to Baal, or in church history where things look so bleak and so grim. Think of the days just prior to the Reformation. It was dead, so to speak. But God made a promise to Abraham. He would make him into a great nation, not merely physically, but also spiritually, that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that though Satan may wage the greatest war he possibly can, Jesus Christ has already won the victory. The church is preserved by the blood of the lamb. God will preserve his church. He always has. And he always will. God would build his church. So God sent Jesus Christ, who though weak in the eyes of the world, the foolishness of the cross is the power of God unto salvation for all that would believe. Also in this promise, God assures Jacob to not fear. Seems very simple, very small. Yeah, do not fear. 
and yet it's profound because the people of God need to know that God is with them and that they are not alone, that they are never alone because God is faithful. He saves them here from famine. He makes makes them into a great nation. Later, he brings them out of Egypt in the great exodus. And then God tells Moses in in Exodus 3, I will be with you. And Moses tells the people before they enter Canaan, have no fear or dread of them because it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 21.6 And God assures Joshua that just as he was with Moses, so he will also be with him. God assures the exiles in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. These are not merely words. This is the comfort for the life of the church. That God would be with him. With them. Whoever they are, wherever they are. That God always remains in abiding fellowship with his people. In our text, he preserves the line that would produce the Messiah. For it is the Messiah. It is the Messiah who would be the embodiment of God's promise to be with his people. You shall call his name Jesus, the Savior. John describes him as Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Emmanuel of God. This is also why after he rose from the dead, he told the disciples and the church and them, Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of his, even to the end of the age. And so he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. Not just on some of them, but all who believe receive the Holy Spirit, the comforter, because that's what the church needs, a comforter. And at the end of the age, congregation, God will in an even greater way dwell with his people. The fellowship of the church with God continues to grow until it reaches its final, final culmination. We read about this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the land. That's the land that the people of God are waiting for. May God grant us the grace to wait in faith. God himself is with us. Always, continually. May we find our shelter in him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.